welcome to another edition of Side and Inside, the podcast for art lovers. Uh, I'm Judy Curtis. With me today are Lawin Connie Nagel and David P. Curtis, um, who uh, have just come back from painting out of doors, so we'll be talking to mm-hmm. them about that very shortly. But just to kick it off, I thought I'd mention about uh, a recent uh, discussion I had down at the Rockport Art Association and Museum when we were looking at the auction works for their upcoming benefit. Uh, it was fabulous to see so many paintings done by Capan artists that were offered, uh, that are being offered for auction. And many of these paintings are done out of doors, which is the tradition on Capan when the artists were coming at the end of the 19th century. Uh, they were painting around the harbour where there were these beautiful schooners, the fishing fleet. There was a lot of colour. There's a, a large Portuguese and Italian community in the area and their boats were always brightly coloured. And so it offered the artist a tremendous amount of material to be painting uh, and encouraging them to go outdoors. I know several artists, including people like Hugh Henry Breckenridge, complained that you'd spend uh, all your time setting up your composition and you're beginning to uh, get ready to refine your painting and then somebody would come out, uh, start putting the sails up and your schooner would sail gracefully into the west. And so (laughs) you had to either work from memory or just work quickly before they actually... But having said that, that's my plug for today. Uh, We're now going to get down to our topic of the week, which is plein air painting. We all know that plein air, on plein air, is just a fancy French word for going outdoors. Uh, But it's a tradition here on Cape Anne that the artists do go outdoors. This is one of the reasons why so many uh, artists have been coming here for over 100 years, 150 years, because they wanted to paint here. We have a beautiful light. Uh, We have a lot of um, exciting material. I know Cape Cod thinks they have a beautiful light too, but they have the harbour, but it's very flat down there. Uh, Cape Ann has a lot more um, interesting terrain in some, in some ways. I'm sure that little people will disagree with me about that, but that's good. Uh, but this is why artists came here to Cape Ann to paint out specifically out of doors. So, and I know, David and Connor, you've been out painting uh, today, and I know that you're mm. exhausted from being out. You were out there, uh, what, half past ten this morning? Uh, and it's a long day when you work, and it's been 85 degrees out there. So uh, let's see what you can tell us about painting out of doors. So, David, I know that people have been doing this for so long. You're a plein air painter. You're... Hate working from photos, you can't work in a studio. Why is it important to you to paint out of doors? Is it something to do with the, the colour that you're seeing, uh, the atmosphere? Does it matter if a painting is done outdoors? So um, maybe not to the art, the artist might want that purity, but does, uh, does the person who's buying the painting, are they going to know whether it's outdoors or not? How can you tell? Yeah, I, I think we've discussed uh, all the other qualities of what is art and and beauty and imagination. So I don't think a painting has to be done out of, especially a landscape, uh, done out of doors for it to be a great landscape. I think this is George Ennis. I don't think he ever painted out of doors. Mm. I think he observed out of doors, used his memory, and um, and just was driven to do these beautiful landscapes that nature inspired that view, too. So I, I think for me, I really have taken into play. Now, I was sort of in that tradition 
I think uh, up until uh, the 19th century, uh, the, going into the 20th century, I think was the, sort of the turning point for landscape painting. I think most art would be, higher echelon would be the uh, religious, the dramatic art, the, uh, the imaginative art would be the highest. Uh, then I think probably figurative art uh, in an allegory setting, uh, then portraiture, probably then still life, and then way down at the bottom is a landscape painting. <laughs> and I think so the landscape painting took a long time because most of the landscapes before then were probably backgrounds for figures. And I, th and I think that's what, how they were used. And, and I don't think anybody had a good look at a landscape. I think it was more or less uh, sort of almost like a religious symbol for their, for their backgrounds in their painting. So I, I don't think it was until the, the turn of the century where we saw uh, an Impressionist movement, uh, prior to that, in the 19th century, some of the pre-Raphaelites were out painting out of doors. Mm -hmm. uh, there was throughout, I mean, Constable was probably out in the late later part of the uh, 18th century. Um, 1890s, he probably was out there doing little sketches. So I don't think it's anything new. I think if painters could be outdoors painting directly from what they see, and that's basically the training, is to paint what you see. So it's easier to go out and to paint something 3D than it is 2D, I think. A photograph just, it's easier for me to go out and walk around the tree, then it makes it easier for me to paint it, you know. I give it a little hug, it likes me, and then I've, I can do a good tree painting. I would say, some, I would say differently about that. I think, I think that uh, it's difficult to do 3D painting and to be outdoors and to actually... Uh, look at something that is 3D and try to make it 2D and try to put a, uh, a flat design on your canvas. So, um, so in fact, I mean, in my, my feelings about plein air painting is I think it's very challenging and very, um, and very exciting because you're in the elements. You know, and exhausting, as as Judy had said, that David and I had been out uh, painting in 85-degree weather for about five hours, and it's really tiring because you have all the wind, and I don't, it's just the whole, the whole bit. And yet, at the same time, you're, you're designing with color, and I think that's the important thing. Uh, I think that's what also was introduced to us uh, through the Impressionist movement. Uh, we got that. Um, and also, I was going to mention that um, David was saying that at the turn of the century, we saw this real, uh, you know, big uh, interest in going outdoors to paint. And we know historically they got tubes of paint at that time, so they could, they were very portable. Their paints, their oil paints were, you know, they could take them out of the studio. Uh, you know their easels on their backs, and and go out and and paint in in the elements, and actually see what nature was like, instead of taking some facsimile. Yeah. Just to echo something, you mentioned the color theories. I think that's very important because of the out. It's sort of like a big synchronicity here. All these painters decide they want to paint out of doors. The French impressionists and other people. Um, and then all these color theories have, I think, believe, 
right. still all appeared around that same time as the. So does the color and the understanding of color and light have anything to do with outdoor painting? I think it. I think it does, and and also I think that the movement um, kind of was fueled by all the discoveries that were taking place. I mean, the Impressionist movement was an explosion of color theory. You know, they had colors in, in shadows where prior to that they were burnt umber and, and uh, some sort of dark uh, note. Um, the, the other thing there was, um, I mean, I'm interested in all this color theory, <laughs> so let me just <laughs> place it in that, in that context, is that, that I've really been getting into, um, first off, I was reading all the speed books, and then I was reading a lot on uh, uh, Murata, who um, David had said that I paint like about five years ago, and so I kept saying, who's Murata, you know, who's this, this guy? And, and I've come to discover, you know, through some of my um, research is that um, Charles Allen Winder was also doing the Murata system, and so I've been reading tons of information about, about uh, color theory through Charles Winter, uh, then through this guy, Denman Ross, who was uh, published a color palette in 1913 out of Harvard University. I mean, these all these people have been doing it. was an explosion, basically, of color theories that were happening between 1900 and 1950. The odd thing, I think, in all of this is that it just sort of died out after that, and people weren't as enthusiastic about how does color and the sensation of color um, uh, come across to the observer, to the viewer of this of this artistic, uh, wonderful finished painting? Do you think there's a psychology to color? I do, I do, and and also I'm wondering too, when when we're discussing it, if um, if there is a um, that all these color theories came into being, and they and they and actually Charles Winter talks about it as color or chromatic sensations he and and even the word sensation is very psychological it's an experiential word it's not a a technical word and so even that can tell you that it it's um it's an exciting area around around the segue between uh color design and and emotion that's interesting Mm -hmm. so do you think then that um, do you need a different color theory then for working indoors? Is it obviously you need a different palette for for going outdoors? Isn't that where impressionism first came from? You had to have a higher key palette, but does it does it make a huge difference to to how you think about color? You're seeing light on on your subject. I wonder. Um, one of the things I think that needs to be clear is that the science of light, which, you know, we think of Newton's theory of, of the prism and, and all the colors, the spectrum of light, uh, is very different from the science of pigments, oil pigments. And one science of light goes, um, goes into white when it's all mixed together. Pigments move to black. And that's also kind of feeds into this whole Murata system, which is looking at the grays. You know, they, um, Hardesty Murata 
came up with a theory in which every um, every one of the primary colors, which is red, yellow, and blue, um, move into a gray scale or gray tone, uh, which also uh, was found. Now, this is another interesting piece uh, that was also around the turn of the century. Uh, there was this guy hearing who was um, who was an ophthalmologist, you know, basically an MD who was discovering a lot about binocular vision, about um, how the color cones, what what types of color cones we have in our in our eyes and and even specifics about the visual system and so and these and the impressionists were using those um the what and where system of the of the visual system to kind of stretch things and make things that and create an illusion of movement like movement of water and ice flows and movement in the grass and the poppies Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, yeah, I think that's very true. I, th- I think plein air painting was a lot of those things, the uh, impressionist movement, and I think the color, the emphasis on color, was never emphasized as much as it was during that that transition mm-hmm. of the impressionist becoming popular and the uh, sort of the fight between academia and impressionism. That's- um, um, I wonder if styles. it's. Do you think it's still going on now, or or coming into play? No, I think there's more of a, a harmony of um, you know whatever anybody tries. I think all those experiments have come and gone. Uh, I think, as you said, though, the science of color is something I think, and we mentioned that there's a there's probably a meaning behind every particular color there is, either individualistically, a yellow means this or a green. I think that's fascinating unto itself. Well, and I do think that there's a um, that color dates back into these um, very archetypal um, symbology, so so that um, we do, you know, a red seems sometimes aggressive. It comes forward. Blue recedes, um, and um, purple maybe is you know, holy or sacred and, you know, all these things, yeah, (laughs) disappears and uh, yellow is vibrant and and, uh, of the highest note, you know. And and that is another thing that we don't really have clear evidence of why these um, artists, you know, between 1900 and 1950 were so interested in color theory, but they were also interested in putting color together with music. And they created whole orchestration systems um, in which they had the color, they had musical notes connected with different colors of of the um, color wheel. Well, it sounds like they were very smart trying to tie all these things together. Um, so the, you know, the, the color, you talk about color theories, um, maybe we could look at the theory versus practicality. If you want to go outdoors to paint, um, to me, the biggest thing, you, you're, like I say, you were out there at half past ten, ready to set up and paint a particular scene, and then you worked on it for how long? Five, six hours? How do you deal with the shifting light? I mean, does, do the colours on your palette help to, obviously they help um, show higher key notes when the sun comes and hits a spot, but how do you decide what time of day you want it to represent? That's That's a long 
time to be out there painting. Yeah, as much as anybody will say I painted it exactly the way it was, or if I go up to a student's painting and they say, well, an hour ago it looked like that, but it doesn't anymore. All those things are nothing. It's the finished product, it, it, whether you do it all from your imagination. But you sit outdoors because it's a beautiful day. I don't think there's anything harm in that. Or if you sat and looked out your window and did a painting, would that be plain air or not plain air? I mean, I think we could debate those kind of little differences. Well, I think if the window's open and the air is coming in, I think you could call that plain air. fresh air. <laughs> I think but that qualifies. Fresh air. But the bird didn't land on your head the way you said it did, you know. Uh, but I, I think painting, I think painting out of doors is something that you get to understand. The lighting effect changes. It's very systematic. Uh, basically, it's there's a front light condition and there's a back light condition. If I look due north here in New England, in uh, Essex County, I can look due north and that light will, the sun will be at my back all day. So the light will be fairly consistent. So the colors and the values don't change too much. Everything changes, everything moves. And that's the beauty of being out of doors. So I think if you approach it right and pick and choose what you want in nature, uh, Connie eliminated walls and trees that did work in a helper composition. Are you allowed to eliminate and, uh, things that are in front uh, of you? <laughs> and, uh, and, and made it into an open space composition, mm -hmm. a different feeling, you know. Uh, Is I'd that why less... you need an artistic license, so you can move things around? Yeah, so you can move things around. <laughs> Correct. I more or less did mine almost um, per se, mm -hmm. you know, the way, the way it looked to me. But the difference was I was looking due east. Mm -hmm. So when I got there at 10, 10 o'clock... I'm looking due east, everything is so silhouetted or it's backlight. Mm -hmm. But I know that in another three hours, the sun's going to be over my right shoulder and everything will be lit up. So it enables me to draw my painting, design my painting with just sort of simple tones. And then when the light comes around, repaint the whole thing mm -hmm. for that effective light. So, you, so the Monet yeah. wanted you to paint a 20-minute angle of light mm -hmm. hitting a particular object in nature. That was the the essence of the goal. Mm -hmm. And he felt, and Monet's theories about painting out of doors, brilliant and very accurate. Um, I don't always think he, his paintings turned out the way his thinking was, you know, his mm -hmm. experimentation. Maybe he was just an experimenter. I'm not sure. I, I tend to favor myself some of the Americans who painted. Child Hassam, who learned the broken color, the um, technique of pointillist technique of little dot, dots and dabs of color. And Connie's been doing so much with color theory. I think she explains that all the, mm -hmm. the theory of neutrals mm -hmm. or opposites, uh, complementary mm -hmm. colors. Uh, the other thing Connie brought up is this binocular vision, which is interesting because right around the same time as they, they're going outdoors to paint plain air, uh, they're also digging up P painters from the past. They're, they're digging up a 15th century artist like Velazquez and uh, Manet is doing, you know, homage to Velasquez. And uh, the other painter who sort of is newly discovered right around that same time is Vermeer. Mm -hmm. Vermeer was sort of a lost, they put him in with all these other painters and rediscovered him. And it's interesting that the Impressionist theory is really lodged in Vermeer and in Velasquez. I think that's the Impressionist theory mm -hmm. for seeing, understanding how to see. We're not talking about the color. But we're talking about how to see this binocular vision that Connie mentioned, I think was a really 
Uh, no, I mean, Valeskis, I think, practices. Vermeer obviously practices it. Something's in focus. And in Vermeer's case, it might be something simple like a little letter. Mm. has all the crisp edges and the light hitting it, and that's the focal point. And the figure is slightly... So it might have meant that she didn't pose as long as the letter posed. <laughs> really? <laughs> so how did the letter pose? Somebody else was... He had what it? they call Lulu's. Oh. Lulu's, you know, a dummy. Uh, 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 to put the, the cloth on and the, you know, the outfits, and then he'd call his wife in to pose for a few minutes, and uh, she was usually pregnant, as most of the women in the paintings look like. So you could say it was almost a religious celebration of I've heard that life for him. Yeah, you know that most of them. Are. Anyway, I, I think uh, just not to escape that, but that's another great invention right around that same time. These color theories, impressionism takes off. Um, also, too, modernism comes into play because they feel that. You guys are not, you know, your academic painters are not designing well enough. You're not thinking about the design. So abstract says it's pure, it's just color, and it's in a, in a pleasing arrangement of shapes, and that's, that's all art is, you know. And, and maybe, maybe it was necessary for the, uh, the traditional painters or the ones who believed in some sort of painting of a reality they, maybe that taught them a lesson that you've got to think about design. You've got to be a good composer. You can't just let that go off. Uh, and I think, I, think, uh, I think that came about through that. Uh, but I think painting plein air is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a... I think it's a joy, but I think it does pose those kind of simple logistic problems of, um, of just different times of day and getting used to what time of day works for you and doesn't work for you or where to look into in what direction to look into but those that's just you know understanding the science of uh you know like mm -hmm. like uh, like hiking and camping out in the woods good well i don't have a lot of experience at camping in the woods i must admit so we'll save that for another <laughs> okay good <laughs> but connie if i'd like to come back to something you said you were talking about you've been reading a lot um, about colour theories, you've been reading speed. Do you think it's important for any artist, whether they're painting indoors or outdoors, do you think it's important to read some of these books about from these people? Um, I think I think you get so. it? Do, you, do you need sort of a, a teacher in front of you, a, a workshop, a class? Um, well, it, or is it a combination of the two? <laughs> I would like to say it's a combo of the yeah. two, you know, because... Be, um, and also, I would lean toward um, more active uh, instruction than just book learning. Yeah. You know, I, but I, I do really highly recommend reading because I think you, you gather up some of the terminology, you get familiar with it, and you uh, begin to experience it when you're outdoors mm -hmm. or when you're in your studio painting. And I do think it really increases the variety of, of um, things you might do. You know, it, it's, it's funny how I think as when you begin painting, um, it's all scary to change, you know, to change even the horizon line sometimes, <laughs> you know. I think that white canvas is scary. Yeah. And, and so the more you read, the more you realize that other people were doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. They also were intimidated by white canvases and, <laughs> and, uh, and they, they got over it and, and how they got over it too. 
So, um, so I do endorse uh, reading, and I've I've had a great time in the past three months. I've been reading a lot. Yeah. Um, so, David, I know that uh, you've been teaching for many, many years. <laughs> well, not that many. <laughs> I thought I thought it was well. What was it? Twenty five years since she started teaching. I remember it well. <laughs> um, but you know, it, I know you do workshops and, and Saturday classes and, and, and different things. Uh, and I know that in the past, many students who were doing, who were working at the museum school in Boston or who were uh, at the Art Students League um, in, um, in New York, they would all go off when, when the break came in summer, they would all go off to summer schools. Uh, Hugh Henry Breckenridge had a summer school out on Rocky Neck for many years, um, the years between the two wars. And he had some oh. great students there who I think deserve a lot of attention. And um, like Harriet Randall Loomis, um, Suzette Schultz-Keister, Alan Randall Freelon. Um, they're all great artists and you can see his influence in their work if you check it, their work out. But interestingly, he, Breckenridge was a very sort of avant-garde painter in the end. He, he wasn't just trying to follow a traditional path, but he would never let his students strike out like that originally they had to they had to paint it or learn in a traditional manner before they were allowed to go out and try anything experimental uh, but it was interesting because they all used to come um, up to Cape Ann in the in the summertime because these summer workshops and classes were really instrumental in, in helping progress their work because they were working every day on it um, I think uh, I think it was Breckenridge who used to charge um, about eighty dollars for the for the summer, like ten dollars a week. But if you signed up for the whole thing, you could have break. It was like seventy five dollars or something like that. So I don't know. That was probably expensive in those days, but it was such a wonderful opportunity for people to come. They could stay at the local hotels. They could step outside the door with their gear. And they didn't have to go far to find something to paint because there was so much material in such a, a small area. So what would you suggest for people who are wanting to uh, try outdoor painting, plain air painting? Do they have to have special equipment? Do they have to, you know, carrying equipment around is, that's, that's heavy gear. Is there something that you could recommend people to use? Well, no, I mean, it's all uh, technique. Is personal. What, uh, how you do something, how you manipulate, so how you paint, it's all very personal. So even even the materials. If I recommended that this uh, person has a, a fifty pound easel, they might come back and say, "I don't want to lug a fifty pound easel around. Anything lighter? Oh yeah, they make lighter easels." So you have to do your homework. I find the ladies do more homework than the guys. The guys don't know any better, so they lose out on all the best deals that Jerry Zadarama has or Dick Blick or whoever. But I, I do think that if you're starting out to paint, the enthusiasm you have for... I think, it's, I think uh, plein air painting is, is, is a lot of being able to enjoy being out of doors. Like, you, like a friend coming down the road might say, David, setting up to paint? And I might just say, I'm not sure. <laughs> I might just sit here all day and enjoy the, the birds singing, the wind blowing, and the sunshine. Uh, I, I think you have to have that affinity for it, too. If you just want to paint a landscape... The studio is fine. I and you know, and I know the next broadcast podcast is going to be 
um, about memory painting. And I would say even painting from nature out of doors is mostly memory painting. I mean, I think it's very difficult to study your subject. And as you said, the light's changing at every second anyhow. Therefore, the colors are changing. Everything's changing. Um, and uh, so how do, you handle, how do you handle all that, you know? So I think you're memorizing. And I think you use your memory. Once you get used to it, you use your memory in that sense of the, the big thing, you know, that big moment. Uh, where you're trying to pull it all together into one painting. Uh, I think that's more important than just, look at this, I matched the color of that sand dune exactly right. Well, good for you, but what about this tree hanging off the edge over here? Are you going to put that in the painting? Or uh, it, there's so many things that have to go on in this. It's, it's, very, it's, uh, it's, it's very complicated, very difficult. So when you're outdoors painting, you're just adding to those complications and those difficulties. I, I really believe it can be very difficult for the beginner to catch mm-hmm. catch it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we're almost out of time. So, Connie, do you have any last thoughts that you would like to add? I don't think so. Um, I just want to put a plug in that I think plein air painting is is the most exciting type of oil painting um, that can happen, especially in the summertime, and we're, this is uh, the beginning of May, we're moving into this plein air season, so I think grab your brushes, get your easel, and get going. Mm-hmm. That, that sounds like good advice, yeah, that's a good uh, and I'd just like to share some, uh, some thoughts, um, we all sort of picked out a, a quote that we wanted to share, David's favorite was, As far as outdoor work is concerned, a studio is only a garage, a place in which to store pictures and repair them, never a place in which to paint them. And that comes from one of David's favourite painters, Soraya. While Connie favoured the one that said, uh, Do console your poor friend, who is so troubled to see his painting so miserable, so sad next to the radiant nature he has before his eyes. (laughs) That comes from Corot. (laughs) <laughs> Whereas I favoured one from Eugene uh, Boudin that says, everything that is painted directly and on the spot has always a strength, a power, a vivacity of touch which one cannot recover in the studio. Three strokes of a brush in front of nature are worth more than two days of work at the easel. And on that note, I hope you're all going to go and get your gear together and go out and paint something on plain air. And then until next week, we'll say goodbye and happy painting. Mm -hmm. Nana, Nana got in this broadcast. (laughs)